Hey, welcome to Audio Smut. I'm Caitlin Prest. This episode started out being called Sex and Homelessness. We wanted to talk about what it might be like to have a relationship when you don't have an apartment, a house, or even a bed to bring someone home to. As we started researching, we found that homelessness doesn't always look like a person sleeping on a bench in the park. We found the gray zone, where people are doing what they can to get by with whatever resources they have at their disposal. Sometimes that looks like doing whatever it takes to keep a roof over your head. Sometimes it looks like making a home where there wasn't one. Sometimes it looks like endlessly surfing couches of any friends you have and any strangers who will let you. You're probably not surprised that we at AudioSmud think that sex and love have to do with everything, but you might be surprised at the impact sex and love have on home and getting by. We start with Jen Allens. Among many other things, she's an Aboriginal woman and she's a sex worker. There are lots of different people doing sex work all over the world in a million different circumstances. Many have chosen their line of work. They like it. But there are also many that haven't. Jen Allens calls these women survival sex workers. One of the things that makes survival sex different from sex work is choice. A lot of people who work indoors do it to feel socially empowered, you know, about their sexuality. Where people who work in survival sex work, it's just about surviving. So I'm making sure I have some money tomorrow to pay my rent, to wash my clothes, to eat. And hey, maybe if I'm lucky, I might be able to go to a movie or buy some makeup or get my hair dyed or, you know, fix myself up or something. Jen Allens grew up in a small town in Nova Scotia. She was a foster child in a large Christian family. And at age 18, she was given the choice to become independent. She could either live on welfare or move in with her quote-unquote real family in BC, which is on the other coast of Canada. I flew to Prince Rupert, British Columbia to live with my family to start my new life as a young adult, not knowing I'm walking into a situation or a household that's full of domestic violence and addiction and poverty and abuse. And I wasn't prepared for that because I wasn't raised around that. Then doing whatever I could to get out of that situation. My cousins took me to a bar, and so I went to this bar, and we just met these two men. And then it was just as simple as these two men invited us to a a house party. And we went to this house party, and my cousins left me there. And so when I woke up in the morning, I was face-to-face with technically two pimps. And they introduced me into the sex industry. So I started working for them. When I met them, the best way to describe it's almost like someone saving you from a bad situation. I mean, they're two women. They were, one was a mother and her kids lived in the house. And so I, t- I got a job babysitting her kids. And then I got a job babysitting her drug dealer's kids. And so and I was making $800 a month doing that. And then on top of that, the extra money I made, you know, involved in prostitution. And so in a way, I guess I was really grateful for my pimps. They were like everyday people. Like um, one was a sex worker for like, you know, like a lot of years and she had a lot of experience. And the other one was a mother and she had two kids. She had a nine-year-old and a two-year-old. And, um, but unfortunately they're both crack addicts. 
my pimps went to Winnipeg because they got in trouble with the law and I got a Greyhound bus ticket and I went to Calgary, Alberta. And for the first, I think, year and a half, I stayed out of prostitution. I came to a place of like, I'm sick and tired of poverty. Like, I'm working three jobs and I got nothing to show for it. And so then I went and applied for escort agency. And then when I was about 21, I got a criminal record for assault and a Calgary police officer. These two police officers took me to a back alley, handcuffed me, and slung me around like a rag doll, literally, except I fought back. And so this is my first interaction with police brutality. And as a result of fighting back, I got charged with assault and a police officer. That started my adventure into the criminal justice system. And so as a result of that, I couldn't get a license to work indoors. So I couldn't work in the safe part of the of sex work anymore. I couldn't get a job doing anything. I could get a job doing telemarketing or flipping burgers. And it wasn't good enough for me and felt like I kept running into this brick wall. And the brick wall was my criminal record because I couldn't get a job at a prostitution to survive. So then I got myself drunk and I forced myself to go into the street where I knew girls worked on the streets. And I just started my, my job or career standing on street corners. And here's how it worked. You'd go into the stroll and there's almost like these gatekeepers you had to get past. So when I went on to the stroll, I always had to let the one lady know I was on the stroll, that I was like, am I allowed to work today? You had to ask her if you're allowed to work today. And she said, she always said yes, because she had no reason to say no. So it's like these gatekeepers I had to get past even to work on the stroll. I remember the date very well. It paid me $65 for sex. And the next day waking up with this, like, I got $65 in my pocket. And this, this feeling of like, I got money. I'm not poor anymore. And then to someone who's poor, $65 is like having $650. And then in one week, I made like close to like $1,000. I just decided that I was going to do that job until I was 44 because look at the money I made. I became addicted to the money really easily. Because you don't want to get caught by the police, you have to go into like, you know, like the middle of nowhere pretty much, right? You know, where you're totally isolated. So if anything goes wrong, you're screwed. I was getting men who figured that they could abuse you because no one cared about you and you were, you were powerless. A guy tried to rape me. He beat me up and robbed me for $160. And then, so that's when I got the reality check of what survival sex is like on the streets. I spent two years on the streets of Calgary, Alberta before I came to Vancouver. By the time I hit Vancouver, I was like fully crack addicted, fully alcoholic and the survival sex trade was my career. I had a lot of police who would come onto the stroll who knew who I was because of my criminal record for assault and a cop. And I got havoc from the vice unit. I remember this one time I had these two undercover cops pull up to me and they're two females and they were just calling me down like saying stuff like, do you not have an education? Can't you find a job doing something else? Why, why are you doing this? They tell me basically I was like stupid. And I remember first thing asking them because immediately that like advocate part of my body just kicks in. So she showed me a badge, asked her her name. And then I contacted the vice unit. So I eventually became known as a person who, if the police messed with you, I'd go in and I'd say something about it. I'd get angry about it. And so even back then when I was like in, in survival mode, being severely marginalized, I still would fight against the police, even though, I mean, they could have got away and killed me if they wanted to. And sometimes as a result of that, sometimes cops didn't come to my bad dates. I got strangled by a guy and robbed, and the cops didn't even show up. 
And I called for, you know, like trying to get someone to deal with it. No one dealt with it. And so I also realized really quickly that the people I, I got a record for assaulting, if I'm not nice to, they're not going to help me. Because one day I'm going to have to call these people. When you're really desperate and hopeless in that kind of situation, you'll take any friendship you can get. I had a guy who befriended me who I didn't know was a pimp from Alberta, and I allowed him to come into my life. And um, four months later, he just turned on me where he was going to force me to work for him. He knew I had money on me. He needed money for drugs. And so he asked, he demanded me to give him money. I said, I don't have any money. He goes, I know you have money. I saw that guy drop you off. I know you've got money. And so I'm like kind of freaked out. So I'm trying to get around him. So I'm going up the stairs and he's chasing me up the stairs. So I go right back downstairs to the security office and I tell him what's going on. And they call the police. And then in the midst of waiting for the police to show up, he tells me I'm going to go to work for him or he's going to beat me. And it's like 12 o'clock at night. And I remember looking in my, my purse, like how many condoms I had. And I was going to give in, but I'm like, no, I'm not going to give in for you. I'm not. And I actually took the beating. He started beating me in front of the security guard. And I just put my head down. I crouched down on the ground, and he kept hitting me and yelling at me. And then he said something that made total sense. He's like, you know, you're just some whore on the street. No one cares about you. And he goes, and no one gives a damn if you end up dead either. That's when I clicked in. It's like a light bulb went off, and I was like, he's right. No one cares if I die. I'm a First Nations woman in Vancouver. 71 women have already gone missing in this neighborhood as if they were going to look for me. I realized this fantasy idea I had about being a, a sex worker was not working out. I'm not Anne Nicole Smith or Pamela Anderson. I'm a First Nations woman who's barely surviving on the street. The next morning... Jen goes to the Pace Society, which is a resource for survival sex workers in Vancouver. She tells them what happened. She gets shipped out to a women's shelter and starts anew again. This time she gets a job working in social services. She moves to the West End. At this point, it's been years that Jen's been struggling to survive the harsh conditions of street sex work. And it's been years that she's been finding ways of cooperating with and protecting herself from the police. And it's at this point that she decides to take her tendencies towards advocacy to the next level. I had all this knowledge. I started Jen's Kitchen, which is an advocacy outreach and food relief service for survival sex workers and other women. And for me, it was just about feeding people, making sure people had access to healthy food. And then it just became much more. And then I just kicked off CopWatch. And CopWatch collects information on and does surveillance of police activity to expose, prevent, and end police violence in our community. So Jen organizes volunteers who do video surveillance of police officers on duty. The group also cooperates with law enforcement. Jen spends almost all of her time helping other people in her position who may not be as audacious as she's been. She warns me, though, that this is not a story about how she escaped prostitution. Prostitution has been a part of my life since I was 18 years old, and I believe it always will be a part of my life because I'm an advocate for survival sex worker safety, for missing murdered women involved in sex work, um, where I'm at today, and I haven't worked for, you know, for the last 14 months or so, 15. We don't know what tomorrow or next year is going to look like, and so we don't know if next year or, you know, 10 years from now I might have to go back to prostitution to survive or, you know, pay my bills or something. So for me, it's like a on-and-off relationship. 
Hey, this is still Audio Smut, and it's still The Getting By Show. Our next story is about a woman who chose to make a home from scratch, where before there was urban wasteland. In the 1980s, New York City's Lower East Side was the perfect storm of government and city negligence, poverty, homelessness, and self-determination. Dozens of buildings were seized by the city for back taxes and lay empty. Naturally, people went in them and started to build homes. This is called squatting, or sometimes referred to as urban homesteading. My friend Famous lived in a squat on New York's Lower East Side for about 12 years. The first time she visited New York City, she stayed at the Umbrella House. The first time she arrived at the now-famous squat, she didn't really know what a squat was. Her first day in New York City was in an abandoned building with no heat, no electricity, no running water. In her words, she found herself very comfortable. Famous traveled through North America for a few years, consistently coming through New York and exchanging labor for lodgings at the Umbrella House. Since repairs were always needed, if you wanted to stay, you had to put in time and build relationships with the people living there. At the age of 24, Famous decided to stay permanently in New York because it was the place she felt most capable of taking care of herself. The work was really hard. The life was hard and definitely took its toll in many, many ways, but it was possible. We start the story here. Famous is leaving the Umbrella House to start anew. I came to the conclusion that if I got to choose the the next phase of my life would look like, I would build a house and I would put a child in it. So I moved up to 7th Street. The person who ended up being my daughter's father took me in to his place. So I ended up pregnant. He and I were not committed to being partners, although we were at the time very much still in love. And... So I, that's when I approached the building for a space of my own. Someone had just moved out. There was an empty space. I uh, asked for it. Um, he lobbied for it. A couple of other people lobbied for it also because of the um, pregnancy. It kind of moved need closer to urgent. And when I got my space, uh, it was it was a space. It was just it was a space four stories up. There had been a big fire in that building that took out that whole stack of apartments from the first floor all the way through to the roof. People in the back of the building would walk out on the stairs, the landings outside their apartments, and just see sky. And building that place out was my pregnancy meditation. to be done. I had um, a community of people really showed up for me. Folks that I hadn't really known so well before, I didn't necessarily have developed relationships with. They just, 
they kept showing up. What needs to be done today? By the time it was time to sheetrock the ceiling, my belly was big enough to where I could still lift sheetrock. I never stopped carrying things, but I couldn't actually get it around my belly. There was like this baby in the belly in the way. And they would hold the sheetrock up for me while I screwed it in. They would help carry it up the stairs, like whatever. There were some mornings close to when Felix was due that I would come downstairs to my space and there would already be somebody working because they could just see what needed to be done. It was pretty amazing. I was being independent, self-determined, and uh, living by my own means for so long that it didn't occur to me to start enlisting any support in this pregnancy. So I was already seven months pregnant before we started interviewing midwives. We did late. So we had interviewed one. We liked her. It took me a couple of weeks to get back to her. And she's like, actually, now I'm already full for that month. And I was like, what? What? Now what do I do? finally landed with this woman, Alice, who was not doing home birth anymore. You know, looking back, this woman was, she's in her 50s. She had five kids. She, you know, suburban house in Queens, had raised all her children pretty, I want to, conventionally, in that they had a stable and secure upbringing, good school. She'd put them all through college, those kinds of things. The Lurie side was pretty notoriously still and quote-unquote bad neighborhood. Cabs didn't cross Avenue A. You could not get a taxi cab to come into the neighborhood, much less find one in the neighborhood to leave. And she drove in, she stood out on the sidewalk, and it looked like an abandoned building. We didn't have good windows in the front of the building. We still had a lot of them boarded up. You couldn't tell from the street that we had electricity. We didn't have doorbells or anything like that. She had to holler up at the building to get someone's attention before somebody could notice that she was there and then go all the way down and let her in. And opening the door, the building still smelled like an old abandoned building. There's a particular smell that I didn't, I I took for granted at the time, but I recognize it now that this building has been unoccupied And we had this crazy pit bull who lived in the hallway. She was our hallway dog, Morena. She was someone's dog when the building had a fire. She had lost a litter. She had kind of gone crazy. She was living in the back of the first floor at the end of the hallway, nested in a pile of fiberglass. Dark, never saw the light of day, rats, cold all the time. So someone went down and let her in. So the first thing that she encounters is this dark, dank, stinky hallway and then this crazed growling barking chasing pit bull coming right at her and that woman still came on in the building (laughs) and came all the way up to the fifth floor and I was busy I was building my house and I wasn't there to greet her I wasn't very gracious I really wasn't I was busy I was eight months pregnant by then which should be also a sign to any midwife like this person is a nightmare and I had this big belly and wore this little cotton tube skirt. I think it was, I know I was wearing my bra and that's it. And a tool belt. And I climbed in the window off the fire escape. Like it was no big deal. Like this child didn't really slow me down much. And she made some comment about the fact that I was agile like that. 
um, which seemed to impress her. And then we took her downstairs to show her the my house that I was working on, where we were planning on having this child. And it was very much a construction site. It wasn't a home that was unfinished. It was a construction site. We're like, she'll be born here with every confidence and everything that we didn't know. And she's like, okay, well, all we really need is the baby needs to land somewhere soft. We need to be able to keep the baby warm and we should have water at hand. <laughs> We're like, okay, basics. We, we can do that. We can do those things. Something soft, something warm, water. Got it. I really don't know why this woman took us on. And this woman charged us the price of uh, an oxygen tank because she didn't have one because she wasn't doing home birth at the time. A fish scale to weigh the baby because she didn't have one because she wasn't doing home birth at the time. And what would really make a difference in her life was a dishwasher. So they bought the dishwasher and we installed it. Um, that's what she charged us. An afternoon's worth of labor, an oxygen tank, and a fish scale. That's it. And she took very good care of us. I moved in two weeks before my daughter was born. And by the time I moved in, there was sheetrock on the walls that had been taped. It had been floated. The floor was painted, although it was still a plywood subfloor. There was plumbing. We had run all of the pipes, both waste pipes and water pipes, all the way down to the basement. That entire stack of apartments got water and waste because I needed to move in to my place. There were nine of us there for Felix's birth. Everything went beautifully. And my child was welcomed into the world by the people who would take care of her her whole life. We still have that apartment that Felix was born in. She either she lived there either with myself or her father until just last year. But that was her home. It is still her home. She still has keys to the building. She still knows everybody else who lives there. When Sandy came through, it was in the flood zone. It was um, affected. That was the first place she went. That building on 7th Street between Avenue B and C is no longer a squat. After years of struggle, that building, along with many others, are now legally owned housing cooperatives. Famous moved out of that apartment a few years ago. If I stayed in the same place on 7th Street between B and C, I would be secure for the rest of my life, but I would be on 7th Street between B and C for the rest of my life. And that's it. Keith Ford was the love child of two members of the Oakland chapter of the Black Panthers. Dad had a way with the ladies. Mom later came out as a lesbian and raised three boys on her own in Cleveland, Ohio. Keith grew up kind of artsy, sensitive. He hung out with the girls a lot, but he was a troublemaker. He came over to Audio Smut Studios, a.k.a. my bedroom, and told me stories about his crazy life. We're running. Hi, Caitlin. 
I am a 30 years young musician and artist and train hopper vagabond love child from space. <laughs> I think it might be hard for someone who's never been homeless to imagine someone without a home getting into a relationship. Um, but for me, like relations, getting into relationships have been, it's always been pretty easy. There have been a few times in my life where I have been homeless. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I was living in this punk house. I couldn't find work, couldn't pay my rent, and I don't recall exactly, but I'm pretty sure I got kicked out that first night. I still had my truck, and I remember parking it on a lakeside street and just like listening to the lake crash on the beach. I was smoking a joint, and there was kind of like the attitude of like, well, I don't have anywhere to go, but psh, that means I'm free. But I think behind that was a lot of fear. And that night I slept in the bed of my truck. I remember hanging out with this girl and she like, she had told this guy who was flirting with her the night that I slept on the couch that he had to leave because she was planning on hooking up with me. I was like, ah, that's funny, you tricked him. Totally clueless to the fact that she was actually trying to hook up with me. I was like, yes. We hung out a lot. And of course, eventually she asked me to stay with her. We talked to her roommate about it. And he was cool with it. I mean, I admire people who are okay with that, but I also think that maybe they don't really know what it means to take a homeless person into their home. At that point in my life, like, being homeless wasn't just like, oh darn, I lost my job in my apartment. It was like, I'm a bum. I don't wanna do anything except drink and get fucked up and have sex with this girl. So I appreciate them letting me in, but it's also kind of like, you probably shouldn't have done that because I totally took advantage of it. At the time, I thought I was just being, I was just in a relationship. You know, I didn't think about it as like, oh, this is convenient for me. We cook for each other and we have amazing sex and we do a lot of drugs and we hang out. We go hiking, we talk about things, we trust each other. And it's not like those things weren't real. It becomes incredibly difficult to, to be lying next to them, asking if I'm with them out of necessity or desire. It's starting to get emotional. Oh no. Okay, let's stop. <clears throat> Sorry. No, it's okay. Just thinking back the whole Times I've been homeless or on the verge of homeless. Typically they would save my life. 
<laughs> it's just sad to think about all that. There's so many different circumstances, so many different women, so many different states. I moved to Rochester to get clean. I was staying with my grandma. She had kicked me out of her house because I couldn't find a job. I was sneaking into the basement of this row house to sleep there. Didn't want to go to the shelter. It was like the fourth day. I was just wandering around the city, like trying to figure out where do I want to work? What am I going to do with my life? Like, what the fuck is wrong with me? I had stopped in this cafe because I was like kind of at the end of my rope. Um, there was this woman there who I had seen around. She kind of looked like um, Mariska Hargitay from Law & Order SVU. And I've always had a crush on that woman. So I was sold. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's true, though. Uh, you know, she asked, she invited me to sit down at her table. She's like, hey. And we just kind of had a conversation over coffee. I saw her again at a grocery store. And she was like, oh, hey, Keith, you know. And uh, it was kind of funny because I was in there stealing food, <laughs> putting cookies and shit in my backpack. One day she invited me back to the co coffee shop or the cafe where we had first spoken. She was like, you know, my husband's in prison. They took my kids. I don't have a job. <laughs> I'm on welfare, my life sucks, you know, uh, and I don't know, trust a lot of the men that I meet because they're not genuine and you seem like a genuine person. She kind of put the cards on the table. She was like, do you want to come back to my apartment? And I was like, yes. <laughs> Her house was kind of like this house, like old. The bathroom was like this this huge window. It's letting the sun in, and it's got this like black and white checkered tile on the floor. I'm like getting undressed to get in the shower with the feet in it, you know? Like, she kind of just came into the bathroom and was like, I brought you a towel and a washcloth, and a, I went to the store, I bought you a toothbrush and some toothpaste, because I don't share my toothbrushes. And I started, I was like picking up on like something, like why, the f why would you buy me a toothbrush? As she's like putting these things away, just very like nonchalantly, she was like, you know, like, I want you to stay here. You don't have to keep telling me that you're going to go back to your apartment. Like, I know that you don't have anywhere to live. So if you want to stay here, you can stay here. But you have to have sex with me. And I, my first thought, of course I was relieved. And I was like, yeah, I know how to have sex. I can do that. I didn't realize what that meant until I was in the shower, like, cleaning myself up and kind of like, it started to slowly sink in, like, wait, this woman, like, I kind of have to have sex with this woman all the time or whenever she wants to stay here and you know it was like whatever fine 
what's wrong with sex? Like, this is going to be great. I thought, or I told myself. <laughs> and the first time was cool. I was way into it. She had a great body. She really liked me. She seemed to enjoy the sex. We talked about it afterwards. We smoked cigarettes. She made food. I slept there next to her that night. And it just went on like that for a while. We didn't really have anything to talk about. We, we were never, we didn't really get close, ever. Yeah, we were having sex and the bathroom door was open and I was staring into the bathroom and I could see like her legs in the air, in the air in a bat in the bathroom mirror and like part of my shoulder and then I like leaned my head over to meet my own eyes in the mirror. I could see her feet, my shoulder, and I remember thinking I don't want to do this anymore didn't feel good, didn't feel right, if that even means anything. And I kind of spaced out. I just kind of went away. And then I had, I came and put my clothes on. She's, I remember she stayed in the bed and just watched me get dressed and I said what to her uh, and she said nothing and I think that was the last time we spoke that experience almost dehumanized sex for me. It didn't even feel like uh, it was an expression of two people's like sexual personality, I guess you could call. That's not what I want from sex. I want to have sex with someone that I care about and that I think is beautiful. And it's funny that now that's the thing that is the hardest thing for me to get. <laughs> to not ever be able to be completely close with someone because you're, you have no real foundation, you have nothing. It's sad because that's exactly where I am today. And it's sad because I've been that way since I was 14. Do you have anything more to say? 
nothing that should be recorded. Everything should be recorded. Will you make love to me one last time? No. That's the part I didn't want to record. Is you saying <laughs> no? Now there's a fucking record of it. that day but um anyway that's probably another episode the music you heard in this piece the music you're hearing right now was all produced by keith the project is called junk with a v instead of a u you can check it out on soundcloud so that's it for the getting by episode if you liked it share it with your friends like us on facebook all that stuff if you loved it donate to the cause of sex positive radio in the donate section of our website. Because we make this for free. We make it for free for you. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but if you feel like it, just letting you know it's an option. This has been Audio Smut, a radio show about your body, your heart, and your junk. There's only one show left in the season, and we're releasing it in a month. This episode was produced by me, Caitlin Prest, Mitra Kaboli, Jen Ng, Julie Alsop, and Ray Dooley. Stay sexy, ladies and gentlemen.